The year 2020 has seen us really battle dual pandemics. Uh, COVID-19 obviously is something that we're all grappling with, and also I think uh, reckoning with racism and social inequity and justice in our society around the world. And there are a handful of people who have really been uh, kind of people I've taken a lot of inspiration from over the years, uh, and certainly going back years, but in particular this year. And one of them is Aubrey Blanche. And I am really excited to talk all things 2020 with her and beyond in this episode of the podcast. And we're going to be right back with that after a brief word from our sponsor. Human resources, people operations, talent and culture. The truth is it really doesn't matter what you call your team. It's all about what kind of HR you practice. Redefining HR is a podcast exploring the leading edges of the industry. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. I'm an advocate for modern HR and have spent over 20 years in the field exploring people practices as a practitioner, an entrepreneur, an author, and a writer for Fast Company. Each week I sit down with CEOs, chief people officers, and transformative talent leaders to break down how they build progressive people teams and capabilities. This season of the podcast is sponsored by PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout the employee lifecycle, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN puts your employees in control over when, how, and where they receive communications. You can check it out at pynhq.com. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Redefining HR. I am super excited today to be talking to my friend, Aubrey Blanche. Aubrey is the MathPath and Director of Equitable Design and Impact at CultureAmp. And Aubrey and I go back years. I think we first met probably six or so years ago. We collaborated on some projects on HR Open Source, and I've always appreciated her approach to building equitable organizations and uh, her willingness to share what she's learning and what she's working on. And we're going to get into all of that and a bit more on the podcast today. So Aubrey, thanks so much for coming on. Lars, thank you for having me. You know, it's always a joy. And I love that, you know, as we've gone on our journeys, we keep finding ways to sort of to connect and sort of check in and, and build awesome things together. Yeah, we do. And, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful to have you, you back on and uh, you know, back on for listeners. You, you might not have that inside context. Uh, this is actually the second podcast Aubrey and I recorded. I think we recorded our first podcast uh, back in, I'm guessing it was probably February, but feels like a couple lifetimes ago. And uh, as I started working on season four of the podcast, you know, the, the original conversation, while it was fantastic and I learned a lot, uh, obviously our world has changed radically since then. And so um, as much as I, I, well, I will find a way to get that content out to all of your ears, because I think there's some really great lessons that Aubrey shared, um, I also want to really kind of dig into where we are based on our times today. And I think there's a, a lot of um, meaningful discussion to be had kind of in this space. And so I really, um, A, thank you for making time again for a podcast recording 2.0. Um, let's start with how you are before we even get into everything. Like, how, how are you doing today? Yeah, I, um, I think the way I'm describing it right now is that like everything about my experience is really polarized. So um, I think as with a lot of people, like 2020 has been a complete trash fire on, on like the personal end in a lot of complex ways. 
but also I'm incredibly privileged and, you know, personally safe, which is something I don't think we should ever take for granted. But I'm also doing what I think is the absolute best work I've ever done personally and professionally. And so and I'm kind of in awe of the people that I'm getting to collaborate with and the work that we're getting to bring into being right now. So like things are really heavy and hard and I'm trying to learn how to like process trauma at a new velocity I've never achieved before, but also just so energized by there's enough attention on these issues. I don't think people are always doing the right things, but attention is something we can harness for change. Yeah. And let's talk about that attention for a moment, because obviously the, you know, the climate that we're in right now uh, is so much different than when we had our, our last conversation, obviously after George Floyd's murder and the heightened awareness and consciousness around systemic inequity and Black Lives Matter has been uh, really brought to the the forefront of a lot of societal conversations and certainly organizational conversations as well. And so I'd love to just kind of get your take as you kind of compare the landscape today versus the landscape you know, earlier this year. And I guess that can kind of link back to the last couple of years based on where you've been spending your time and where you've been working. Like what, where, how do you kind of describe the moment that we're in right now? Yeah, I think um, like the way I describe it, because I'm a forever a political scientist, is like the speed and scale of the Overton window shift that's happened um, has me even shocked, but in the best possible way. So I feel like I, you know, six months ago was still being forced to talk about unconscious bias because it didn't make white people uncomfortable. (sighs) And now I'm actually able to just be like, nope, those were white supremacist conscious design decisions and I need you to stop. Um, and instead of like firing you, people like write you three paragraph thank yous. Um, and so I think that's like, that's the moment we're in. And and I hate the reason for that, right? Which is yet another example of systemic, you know, the legacy of brutality against black and brown bodies in America and around the world. Um, but the fact is white people, men, like people in power are actually paying attention and seem to be taking at least in pockets, some level of responsibility, which um, is something, you know, I, I don't intend to waste a moment of that attention or, or guilt or shame or whatever anyone's feeling right now, if we can turn that into better processes and better equity for people who deserve it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was really uh, happy to see and uncover, and I imagine you were directly, uh, very directly involved with it, the um, kind of Culture Amp releasing their plans on becoming an anti-racist company. Uh, it was the first I had seen uh, of a company specifically taking a public stance with with actionable steps they were taking around anti-racism. And I'd love to kind of get behind the scenes uh, on that. Like, where, where did that come from? How did that come together? How do you kind of operationalize that vision? Yeah. So I think where it came from was, you know, in the immediate aftermath of um, sort of the virality of, of George Floyd's murder, um, Culture Amp came out and put out a statement about you know, sort of tr- we, us intending to stand with the community and gave some insight into what we were doing in the in the, mo- in the nearest term. Um, and, and that sort of commitment uh, started really with the focus on supporting our black campers. So campers are what we call our, um, our employees. And but the thing that we felt was really important about this is that we saw so many companies that put out these in many cases like milk toast we support BLM and then like get a tax donation um, or a tax break by making a donation, which let me be clear, I'm always in favor of capitalism, putting money in black hands, like full stop. But to pretend like that's sufficient is not fair. Um, And also 
what I didn't see from companies was them taking accountability for their own internalized and institutionalized white supremacy and making a plan to stop abusing their black and brown employees. And so at Culture Amp, you know, as a business, they were founded to be different. And um, they wanted to build a business. And Didier and our founders have said this, that's culture first. And so if we're going to do that, we have to do something differently. And so I was tasked, you know, with leading um, with, you know, the insight of our black campers and other people across the business to build a plan and a strategy that supported at the highest levels of the company. Um, and so we, we uh, pulled that together um, in a couple of weeks, sort of based on the, the bones of what was the EDI strategy I had already delivered, um, but leaned really aggressively and heavily into accountability at the company and at the leadership level and in deep education about systems of oppression, white supremacy, anti-Blackness, um, and things like that. And then also you'll see at the bottom of the plan, um, you know, things like overhauling our knowledge management and SaaS productivity tool practices to make sure that knowledge is democratized. Um, and the last item on our list, it was, you know, overhauling recruiting. Um, and it was last on purpose. Yeah. Uh, because we wanted to set an example for all of our customers about what it would look like to begin to do the work of evolving to be an anti-racist organization. And, and that's really important because as a white-founded, white-led organization, it's not our job to decide when we've become an anti-racist organization. It's our job to commit to doing the work, continue to extend it, um, and then also look to the people we're looking to support, which, as you see in our plan, our accountability metrics are on only consider the experiences and opinion of our Black employees. Um, and that's because ultimately they're the ones to judge whether we have done our work sufficiently. Right. Um, and our goal will be to sort of, that's the, the sort of the first six month plan. Um, and we're, we'll be looking to provide an update in early 2021 on how we've done in achieving our metrics and sort of um, the programs that we committed to deliver. So again, it's going to be an ongoing um, you know, system of that, but we'll eventually also be working in um, work around universal access and accessibility and beginning to think about other aspects of inclusion, but always and first grounded in anti-racism because we believe if we start there, we maximize our ability to create a world of work that works for everyone. Yeah, and I was I was happy to see it. I, I'm sure you'll be kind of updating uh, as you go and um, what you're learning and, and how that's developing because I think it's a great model for other companies to emulate. And, and I think we're going to need those models. You know, when I, when I look at the fact the when I look at kind of translating some of this movement into, into businesses and into organizations, and then, you know, through that, look at HR's role in frankly, having perpetuated these white supremacist systems for so long and, and, you know, not taking the time to educate themselves and understand them because by and large the HR, the field of HR is 70% white. It didn't impact them. They did not, try to understand them. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, when, when I look at, you know, even LinkedIn these days, you can see conversations around, uh, black lives matter. I think specifically I shared, even when I shared your, uh, the, the anti-racist kind of, um, you know, I know you don't call it a manifesto, but the, the plan at culture yeah. amp, um, I was getting kind of all lives matter nonsense comments, you know, on my post from people who are HR managers, you know, who are people who are supposed to be the ones playing a leading role in building equitable organizations. And so I'm just curious to get your take, like for, for the field of HR at large, how did they rise up to this moment? How do they make sure that the attention 
and the interest, especially in the ears of the executives in this moment of time, that we don't waste that and we, we really make meaningful change. Yeah, I think it starts, like I said, again, by stopping, pausing and doing deep education. So a lot of uh, companies sort of are jumping to action, but they're doing things that are actively harmful because they don't have the appropriate education to understand what truly disrupts these these power dynamics that make up the system. So an example, I see a lot of companies, for example, saying, oh, well, let's start a mentoring program for, you know, black students in, in college. And certainly I, I think we should have those things so that, that people have access to get the, you know, the sort of secret professional knowledge that, that you get through your social communities or whatever. But, you know, when I had a, a leader kind of propose that, I said, and help me understand how that disrupts the power dynamics of white supremacy. Yeah. And they were like, oh, and I was like, yeah, I think now the phase that we're at is actually doing deep deep personal work, right, to understand our own internalized racism. And I say that, um, I know I'm on a podcast, and I do identify as Latina, and I grew up in a household. Um, my dad is Native. Um, I'm adopted. But, um, but you know, I'm still white passing. And so even though I'm someone who very much identifies as, you know, a woman of color or as Latina, I, who does racial justice work constantly, I'm constantly still um, you know, sort of decolonizing myself and that. And for most of these people that want to take action, they haven't even considered that process for themselves yet. And yeah. so I think that's the step is you actually convince your leaders that what they don't have is any damn knowledge about what to do. And let's just decide that's okay. It's not really right. We should have all been educating ourselves, but we didn't. And the next best time to start is right now. And take the time to do the work the personal work to think about how your previous business decisions have enabled or have expanded white supremacy. Because if you think you haven't, you probably haven't analyzed hard enough and haven't reflected hard enough. And what I hope people take from that is you made a choice then and you can make a different one now. Right. That, I think that education piece is, is definitely important and resonates with me too. I think that a lot of people you know, in the earlier uh, stages of this kind of moment in time right now where, uh, and frankly, I'll say myself included, it was kind of like, you know, outraged by the the situation and wanting to do something and wanting to make a difference uh, and not actually taking that time to educate. And, uh, you know, I'll call myself on it. I did the same thing. I think I was like, how can I, how can I be of service? How can I, uh, you know, do something to make a difference? And I, I did a couple of things, but what I didn't do right out of the gates was to really take enough time to be introspective and to educate myself and to read and to learn and to have conversations. And I think in having done some of that work since I'd certainly realized the era of my own ways of kind of just coming in hot, right. Of just mm -hmm. like, and I think a lot of companies are, are approaching that too. And, you know, when you look at, when you look at HR departments, um, you know, you know, specifically who are, who are in a position, you know, to dismantle, some of those, uh, you know, those systemic kind of white supremacist systems within the organization. Do any, you know, when, when you kind of look at organizations doing this work, do any uh, particular kind of systems, programs, initiatives uh, come to mind that are often the most, uh, you, know, uh, you know, centered around white employees that, uh, you know, where, so as they're doing this work, and then they've gone through the education process and now they're starting to think, okay, what, what can we change? What can we look at? Like, do you find that there are certain, uh, 
systems or programs in terms of how the organization operates that that are most often skewed towards white employees? Yeah, well, I think the entire like unconscious bias training um, like industry is like racism without making white people uncomfortable training. And and so like I hope it goes away. You know, it was invented by lawyers as a sort of compliance mechanism. I do think there are like useful educational, you know, ways to educate people about bias. Let me be clear, but I don't think a two-hour training is it. And and so yeah, I think for me, what is useful is to focus on providing, um, and what we've been doing internally is providing a couple layers of support to our to our black employees. So first, you know, running um, wellness, emotional resiliency um, programs like that. So not only making sure that they're supported in the moment of a tragedy, but that we are also actually investing in them to be able to be resilient and well in the longer term. And then I think. Um, you know, there's some programs that, that CultureAmp is using that I'm a huge fan of. Um, disclosure, I'm an advisor to one of them. Um, but we're using a program by Seed and Spark called Film Forward on Racial Justice that uses short films and, you know, guided prompts and facilitated expert facilitated discussions to help people begin to understand sort of an moral, complex decision making around um, justice and and what their role is. And that we're seeing a ton of uptick on. My mom and I do it together. Um, I'm here visiting her. So we do it over lunch. And, um, and, and I think those are the kind of things that spark change, which is, um, you know, so first giving people their own way to metabolize it and take it in. I don't think that lectures and trainings like that are particularly useful because people need to wrestle their own moral questions and their own views on this to the ground, um, uh, to mix metaphors a little bit, um, in, in order to it actually get integrated. And it needs to get integrated into them before they can begin what I call a practice of, of equitable design, um, whether that's equitably designing your life and the choices you make in it, whether that's equitably you know, designing the choices you're making within your business operations, um, but you have to do that really deep self-work first. Got it. And let's, I want to talk a bit more about equitable design because I know, you know, obviously that's, you know, connected to your specific role at Coltramp, mm-hmm. but we've talked about, you know, right now uh, the terms could be diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging. Like why, why does, for listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with some of this terminology, what does, maybe if you could define some of those terms and kind of talk about why equitable design is so important to you. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I came from the field that they call diversity and inclusion and I like deeply, deeply dismiss all those words. So diversity means a lot of things, but, but the research that I did when I was back at Atlassian in their 2018 state of diversity report showed that the word diversity was associated with, um, black Americans and white women. And so the word first of all leaves out so many other marginalized people, but it also covers up for corporate white feminism, right? So you say diversity and people think that you're doing work that, that creates black opportunity or empowerment when you're actually probably just running programs that help straight whites and gender women. And so, um, and then inclusion to me, just feels really assimilationist in a way that I'm not interested in participating in. Um, right. I don't want to be included in a space that was designed for straight white cisgender men. Yeah. I actually want to belong, belong in a space that thought that like a queer Latina woman with like multiracial heritage and, and multiple disabilities is like, that's who is supposed to be there. And so that's why I like belonging. 
Um, but equitable design to me, and the reason that I'm such a proponent of this language and sort of philosophy is that diversity and inclusion is an outcome. Equitable design is a constant practice of action. Um, and so that can be at the systems level if you're the CEO or the you know head of HR, but that can also be equitably des designing a meeting to create equitable outcomes, designing a one-on-one -on -one interaction, designing a way that you um, provide you know professional coaching and advice to people. Um, and so diversity and inclusion doesn't necessarily require action. It just allows executives to say, I care about it while giving no money and gaslighting candidates because they put up a pretty career site. <laughs> right. Equitable design actually requires you to do something and put action where you say your care is. Yeah. And I think you'd mentioned earlier uh, in the conversation about um, spending some time with your parents in the Midwest right now. And I, I saw a tweet from mm -hmm. you, uh, I believe it was last week, kind of talking about, uh, you know, their interest in learning about racism and systemic inequity and you taking kind of some of the practices that you're actually working on at CultureAmp to your parents. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So my family is racially a little bit funny. Like I joke sometimes and I call my family post-racial and I don't mean that in a serious way. Um, internet don't get at me. Um, <laughs> but what I mean by that is, is my family is actually, um, like very American. So my mom is second generation Irish American and Belgian American. Um, my dad is uh, French and German as well as native American. So his family is from the Choctaw nation. Um, but he also, uh, is uh, an attorney who did significant work on the federal recognition and land rights for the Odawa and Chippewa, um, which was the first nation to be federally recognized, and he he helped write their constitution. So I grew up in like in, in sort of the Native community and in a in a very specific way. And then you know I my biological family on my mother's side I'm Mexican American, so my family has always like talked about race and heritage, but we never really talked about like the, the political constructs on top of it, right? It was more this sort of individualistic, like here's what we are and we all celebrated each other's cultures in my home. Um, and my, you know, my parents, and I'm also queer. And so my parents kind of don't get me, but every time I come home, right, there's like new social justice learning for them. So my parents are in their seventies, but, you know, earlier this year we were working on they, them pronouns and like understanding gender outside the binary and like, what trans and gender fluid, you know, and intersex people, how they exist, how it's very normal. Um, and now I'm getting my dad into a little bit more um, like lesbian culture because gosh, that's fun. Um, <laughs> so uh, that, and then my mom, you know, grew up in, in Detroit. So she had a lot of touch points with the, the black community given that city, but is someone who, uh, doesn't she she's not overly political and that, that's not how she experiences the world you know she's very um she has a very big ethos of service and so a lot of what I'm trying to do with her is connect her care that she's always provided um to people um and help her understand the ways that those things are different or more extensive for um black and brown people in the country you know the latinx community things like that um, so it's slow and it's over time. And, you know, my dad is native and has done some really cool stuff that we would all call woke, but he also is 70 and like, I'm working with him on like dismantling his respectability politics. And so for me, that's just a part of, of my work of trying to be the person I want to be in the world means I need to take part of the labor of educating my family and my close community so that they can in their own way show up, right, to support other communities, because we are very fortunate 
family, you know, we're economically stable and all of those things. And so helping them get a deeper understanding means that they'll be able to find the ways to practice equitable design in their life. Yeah, I mean, it's so cool to hear you just talk about that. And I can imagine how, uh, you know, special, probably at times frustrating, probably at times exciting, you know, that the whole process must be of being able to kind of connect with your parents in that way, uh, especially around, you know, conversations and topics that I know you're so passionate about. So that's, uh, that's really cool. You're able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, my dad and I have had more than more than one yelling fight about, you know, our opinions on the appropriateness of direct action and, you know, and, and things like that. Um, but, uh, what I appreciate is in my house sort of discussion about what was right and, and, and ethics was always something that existed. And, you know, um, this didn't help me have friends when I was eight years old, but like my dad was explaining to me how OPEC worked and, <laughs> you know, on the way to school. <laughs> um, and so we've always had these sort of higher order political conversations. And so to be able to advance those and, and to see, to see my parents who, like I said, you know, people say, oh, older people don't get it. Well, they, they do if you talk to them and, and you engage in, in thoughtful ways. And I've seen my parents grow in their understanding. And yes, like my mom still doesn't always use great language when she's asking for someone's pronouns, but like she asks for feedback and she's working on it. And she clearly really, really wants to get it right. Um, you know, and, and she, she thinks about those things. And so that growth is something that's also just really wonderful for me to be able to see. Um, and it's proof that we can all move forward and we can all learn and grow. Yeah. And, you know, and I imagine there's probably uh, quite a few listeners who are in similar conversations with their parents or their friends. You know, are there any lessons that you've kind of taken away that have that have helped you find that common ground uh, during the education process? So that, you know, basically tips for listeners that uh, are maybe kind of uh, engaged or will be engaging in these kind of conversations. I imagine, especially in the U.S., as we get closer to the election date, there will be more of these conversations and many of them won't go well. Hopefully some will go well, but like, are, are there any key learnings that uh, you've taken away from your own conversations that you think might be helpful for them? Yeah, I think the the like most humbling part of this is like, people have to go on the journey at the speed that they go on it. And, and I want to honor that for some people, like that is just too exhausting to guide people on that journey. And like, that's everyone's right you know, you don't have to do education that you don't want to. But um, I think it's really easy for those of us that are trying to be leaders in some capacity or sort of push the envelope in this, that we all started somewhere too. You know, so um, I remember as a high school student, um, being really anti the concept of affirmative action as a, as a, you know, Hispanic student, because I said, well, I didn't want to get an unfair advantage just because my mom was Mexican. Like at that moment, I didn't, have an understanding of the how systemic inequity worked. And so I didn't understand the remedy there. And obviously my opinions on that have deeply changed. You know, I believe that we need a better remedy because affirmative action mostly benefits white women, but but it helps me remember that I walked a journey too to my current sort of orientation and view to the world. Um, and I think that it also provides for those of us that are, are doing sort of justice and evolution work, um, a lot of opportunities to practice compassion yeah. and understanding um, because these are deeply, in my case, personal loving relationships that are some of the most important in my life. But also if they are the most important in my life, then I need to push them forward, right? That's 
at least how I conceptualize it, that's part of how I love them best as I hold them accountable because I believe they're capable of growth. Yeah, that's interesting and, and helpful. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, my last question for you, Abby, when you think about your work and the space that you're in, who inspires you? Who inspires your work? Who, who, who do you follow? Who do you track? I want to help listeners uh, who may be familiar with you and want to broaden uh, the voices that they have access to. Like, who are some people doing incredible work in this space that listeners should connect with and follow? Yeah, so um, Yvon Hutchinson is just like one of the most brilliant people that I know in the space. I feel like I like I learn 10 things when she exhales. Um, so follow her on Twitter. She's the CEO of the Ready Set. She has a new podcast. Buy her book when it comes out. Um, also, Michelle Kim is someone that I really respect. Yeah. So she is the CEO of Awaken, and she is doing such incredible work, specifically looking at the Asian and Asian American community around dismantling anti-Blackness. Um, that I think is really a model for all of us in terms of how we can do organizing and justice work pointed at our own communities. Um, Cindy Gallup is someone that like, I want to be her when I grow up. Um, (laughs) So she's also mixed race, but I would say partially white passing. I don't know what she would say. And so she's an idol for me in particular, because me as a person who my primary identity really is, is as a Latina woman, but holding that I'm white passing, I have a lot of complexity there. And Cindy Gallup seems to just not give any fucks about anything. (laughs) And I love that because she has such a beautiful sort of voice in the world. If you follow those people, I promise you that you'll be wiser. Um, Check out who I follow on Twitter because I feel that I'm overwhelmingly lucky um, to have access to the voices that I do. And it's one of the reasons I'm on Twitter so much is because I learn. Um, Oh, one more. Uh, John Marble, um, who is the CEO of of Pivot Diversity. He has taught me more about autism and, and the way that people on the spectrum see the world Um, And it's given me such a deeper and more appropriate appreciation for what that vision can do for humanity. So I would recommend everyone check out what he says. Great. Well, those are some great recommendations. And I hope listeners are uh, taking notes or rewinding to uh, to go check out and follow all those people. Um, Aubrey, for you, if listeners want to, you know, connect with you, stay in touch with what you're reading, what you're working on after the show, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So uh, I am a Twitter human. My soapbox is at (laughs) is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I yell on Twitter a lot. Um, my soapbox is at AD Blanche on Twitter. Uh, you can get me on LinkedIn, although I am actually terrible um, at responding to messages. I'm sorry. Um, but if you want to get in direct touch with me, go to AubreyBlanche.com and there's a form there and that'll shoot me an email and I will do my best to get back to you as soon as I can. Great. Well, Abby, this is uh, fun. I really appreciate you making time for round two and I'm glad we had the opportunity to have the conversation. I learned a lot as I always do when I talk to you and uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Lars. Always a joy to be on and, and grateful to be able to share a message. If it can be inspiring or move anyone to action, that's that's all we got to do. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.